Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. There is a documentary filmmaker, a neuroscientist, a physician economist, and a historian author who focuses on American history and anti-racist research. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi is one of 25 new MacArthur Genius Fellows. The award is an acknowledgement of the fellows' demonstrated talent in their fields and their future potential as leaders in those fields. And Dr. Kendi joins me now as part of our series highlighting local fellows, the genius next door. Welcome to Under the Radar, Dr. Kendi. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have you first. Congratulations. We need to say that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> there will be some who will hear your name and know it. In some circles, you're well-known. But for a lot of people, this will be the first time they're hearing of you. So I want to say that you are the Andrew W. Mellon Professor in the Humanities and the founding director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. You're also the 2020-2021 Francis B. Cashin Fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for the Advanced Study at Harvard University. And you have many other roles and talents. But right now, I just wanted to give people a basis of understanding uh, some of your scholarly background. So you've been studying racism all your career, as you've said. I'd like to know what ignited your interest in the topic as a field of study and scholarship. I think it's a combination of personally either witnessing or being subjected to racism, as, as well as trying to figure out the causes of racial disparities and inequities in our society. And in many ways, I was taught like many Americans that that the causes of those disparities and inequities are the result of what's wrong with particular racial groups on the lower end of these disparities. And, and it, I think beginning in college and especially in grad school, I began to learn about the structural and policy causes of those disparities. And, and the more I learned, the more I wanted to learn. And the more I wanted to learn, the more I wanted other people to learn as well. Now, one of the core of your anti-racist research and scholarship is that we don't understand the definitions, that there, there has to be some defining of terms before you can even have a constructive conversation. So many people are using the word racist and, for that matter, anti-racist, but they don't know how to define it. Why don't you define both of those terms? So I define a racist as someone who is expressing an idea of racial hierarchy or, or supporting a, a policy that is leading to racial inequity or injustice. And I define an anti-racist as the polar opposite of that, which is someone who is expressing an idea of racial equality or supporting a policy that is leading to racial equity or justice. And so what that means is these racist, like anti-racist, these aren't terms we use to attack people. These aren't slurs. 
And, and these aren't terms about who a person is. These are terms that describe or diagnose what a person is being in any given moment based on what they're saying or doing or not doing. And so what's the biggest misunderstanding about what anti-racism is? I think probably the biggest misunderstanding goes back to a, an old white supremacist talking point. About 10 years ago, a prominent white supremacist gave this screed called the mantra in which he stated that anti-racism is code for anti-white. There's this misunderstanding that people who are challenging ideas of racial hierarchy or who are challenging structural racism are really just challenging white people and have a problem with white people as opposed to having a problem with racism or even racist ideas you know, or policies. And I think now that white supremacist talking point has gone mainstream, unfortunately. Mm. Now, we start hearing some more terms about anti-racist and racism, thinking about these concepts, I think, more out in the open, if I can use that expression, after George Floyd's murder last year. Lots of conversation about, you know, was this racist and, and what does it mean to well, work against something like that happening? What does it mean to be anti-racist? And we saw a number of folks trying to have conversations about it. So here's a clip from CBS Chicago when they covered the impact of George Floyd's murder a year later in May 2021. Anti-racism workshops have been in high demand since George Floyd's murder. We simply could not accommodate all of the requests that were coming our way. We do a lot more of asking folks, is this just a one-time thing? Is this just a trend or are you committed to the long haul? You did not get an anti-racist badge upon completion of this course. Anti-racism workshop facilitators are challenging people who hit the streets last summer to redefine what it means to be an ally. So, Dr. Kendi, one of your points is it's not just a kind of a discussion. It's really an action that you say being anti-racist means you have to be involved because doing nothing is not anti-racist. Would you explain? Yeah, and, you know, just like I said earlier, that anti-racist is a descriptive term. It describes what a person is being. So what that means is to be anti-racist you actually have to do something, right? You have to express ideas that there's nothing wrong or right with any racial group or, or support policies that are actually reducing racial inequity. And then that's different than the identity of not racist or the identity that people project of racist, that these are fixed categories. So I'm not racist, so I don't have to do anything. To be anti-racist, like to even be racist, you actually have to do something or say something, or even in the case of being racist, to not do something. Because to literally allow a status quo of racial inequality to persist is to be complicit in its persistence. And this isn't just about race. This is about anything. When you have a serious existential problem, when you're walking by someone who's getting beat up and you do nothing, What's going to happen? That person is going to continue to be harmed. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. My guest is Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, founder of Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research, who is one of the 2021 MacArthur Genius Fellows. Dr. Kendi, I was fascinated by your book, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, which won the National Book Award for Nonfiction in 2016. 
And at the time, you were the youngest ever winner of, of that award for nonfiction. You may still be. Here's a twist in the book or something that was kind of mind-blowing, I think, to a lot of us, that you say we have it backwards, believing that you have to be ignorant and hateful to produce racist ideas. But in fact, the opposite is true, that racist ideas lead people to become ignorant and hateful. So you explored the origin of the racist ideas in that book. So if you could connect how the origin of those ideas then led us to somehow come up with the misunderstanding of how this all works. Sure. So I think that we have been taught that ignorant and hateful people produce racist ideas. And then people who have power, who hold racist ideas, institute racist policies. And that line of thinking has then caused us to say, you know what, the source or the fundamental problem is ignorance and hate. So that's where we have to start if we're going to eradicate or abolish racism. But what I found in studying the history of the producers of racist ideas is that indeed they were producing these ideas not out of ignorance and hate. Many of these people are who's who of knowledgeable people in American and Western history that what was actually happening was they were producing these ideas to substantiate or justify existing or new racist policies that typically benefited them and that people were consuming those racist ideas and becoming ignorant and hateful. To give a very quick contemporary example, you have people, elected officials who recognize that voter suppression policies are in their political self-interest. And so they're pushing those policies and simultaneously producing and circulating the racist idea that those voters in Detroit, Atlanta, Phoenix, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Cleveland, i.e. Black and Brown voters, are fraudulent and illegal. And then people are consuming those ideas and becoming ignorant and even hateful towards those voters. And even, as you say, coming up with ways to defend the ideas at that point, because then it seems to make sense to them in a way. Exactly. Now, you've just opened the uh, center at Boston University for anti-racist research. As we try to get our hands around, what does that mean? How are you organizing the research and the study there? Like, what are the tent poles of the research there? So we've actually sort of organized our center based on really the process of racial change. So how, over the course of time, have we been able to eliminate racist policies or even create higher levels of equity in in certain areas. And and typically there were sort of four pillars to that progress, to that achievement. There was research, obviously, which was at the core, which is researchers actually studying and uncovering racial disparities, recognizing that, you know, Black and Brown and Indigenous people are being infected and killed at the highest rates from COVID-19. And what we've done historically have produced or recognized the actual policies and practices that were behind those disparities and then came up with new evidence-based policy proposals to reduce those inequities. And so that's why policy is our second sort of major pillar. But then we've circulated that research and those policy proposals to everyday people so they can understand that problem and solution. That's why the third pillar is our narrative office. 
And then finally, see changes through advocacy, which is why another pillar of our work is advocacy. So we've organized our center around research policy narrative and advocacy work. So the narrative part is probably how most people have known you prior to your work at Boston University and the new center. You're out there in the middle of what I would say, in my lifetime anyway, is the most fraught, troubled, racial divisiveness that I've seen. And you're a voice to try to explain what is happening. But as the MacArthur Award says, you're working on possibilities for repair. So how do you find yourself in this most fraught time? Or let me just ask, maybe you don't think it's the most fraught time. How do you see this time where there appears to be just the most hateful speech out there that I can think of? And people are now winning elections based on complete falsehoods that are based in a racist history. The unfortunate truth is that over the course of American history, elected officials had run on and won elections based on complete falsehoods. And obviously the creation of this myth that both critical race theory is widely taught in schools when it's not, and that critical race theory is an anti-white sort of learning exercise that teaches children that they're evil. Those twin falsehoods, of course, have been sort of utilized by elected officials and they run on them. And then those of us who are engaged in research to uncover and challenge racism are then all painted as critical race theorists and thereby anti-white, and thereby people are coming at us as if we're, quote, the racist ones and have, a, have been attacking us and circulating all sorts of death threats and hate mail. And so it is extremely nasty <laughs> out yeah. there, to say the least. I mean, anybody you want to just check out any of my social media accounts if you want to see how nasty it is. But I'm just trying to stay above that fray. Uh, obviously, sometimes I, it's hard to do that and focus on the work. And the work at hand is 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 relieving people from the material harm that they're facing as a result of racism and even relieving those Americans of all races who think that the problem is people as opposed to policy. And through my work and the work of others, they can come to realize that we're all equals. And then obviously repair the damage that has been done to us as individuals. And obviously that's been done to us as a society with all this division as a result of racism. Well, one of the other parts of your narrative approach is really going in the opposite direction of the adults and talking to the young people. You rejiggered your Stamped from the Beginning for Adults into Stamped Racism, Anti-Racism, and You, co-authored with Jason Reynolds. That's a young adult remix of your book. But you also wrote a book called Anti-Racist Baby. I want to give my listeners a chance to hear a bit of that. Here's a clip from a 2021 episode of BookTube Jr. as you, Dr. Candy, are reading from Anti-Racist Baby to a group of children. Shout, there's nothing wrong with the people. There's nothing wrong with the people. Nothing wrong with the people. Shout it. There's nothing wrong with the people. Even though all races are not treated the same, we are all human. Anti-Racist Baby can proclaim We're all human, and we all need to take care of each other. You treat others like you'd want to be treated. 
So your efforts going in the direction of young people are quite deliberate. What are you seeing as an impact of those works that are specifically aimed at young people? So, well, first, I mean, as I saw sort of on working with those young people for that specific YouTube show, you know, young people themselves are excited to really understand and learn about their world. They're sponges and they are constantly sort of trying to understand this world, this world of racial inequality that they live in. And so when we're teaching them concepts about about equality, you see light bulbs going off or you see them appreciating themselves and all the different people around them. I mean, to me, that's the beauty of it. But then there are also many teachers and parents who are looking for resources to teach their students, to teach their children or the people, the child they care for, you know, about these topics. And, And so I'm just excited to be able to provide them with resources as well. Okay, now we come to the fun part of this discussion. Uh, (laughs) How did you learn that you got the MacArthur Genius Award? Tell us about that moment. So someone from the foundation called me. You know, I don't, I didn't pick up. I don't know if you pick up like (laughs) random numbers, but I don't. Uh, and, And so I didn't pick up. And then they texted me. And they were like, well, they're from, you know, foundation, you know, in Chicago. And then they said their name. And so then I... You did did what we do as humans now. I Googled them and I was like, whoa, they're from the MacArthur Foundation. Okay, what is this about? And I didn't think it was them calling me to tell me that I want a MacArthur Fellowship. I was just like, to me, that's... And so I, you know, I said they can... But, you know, I'm also talking to, to foundations about the center and our work. So I, you know, I had no idea what it was about. And, and so, you know, I, they called me and they told me and my first words were, are you serious? Because I, I was just in disbelief. <laughs> that had to be just a joyous moment. By the way, you're, I think you're three out of three now for my local genius fellow saying, who answers the phone with a number you don't <laughs> recognize? So that's got pretty typical. All right. So $625,000, what do you think you want to do with it? So I haven't completely figured that out yet. I, I suspect... I'm going to probably use it to support the research, the, you know, the research that I'm doing. I'm trying to figure out precisely how, but but that's that's what I'm thinking. Well, as I always say when I have these conversations with the fellows is the great thing about MacArthur is you're just doing your work, just doing your thing. You're just grinding, doing your thing, not paying attention. And here they come with something and they make it really clear that you can do with it as you wish. So you could go sit on the beach and stare and have a deep thought. And that would be okay too, if you wanted to use it that way. Few people do, but you could. (laughs) (laughs) Any fun things have you decided you want to do with the money? Unfortunately, no. I, you know, I, I did go out to dinner, my wife and I, and my daughter, we went out to dinner. I think that first week after we, you know, learned of it to celebrate, but I should probably do something else to celebrate. But I haven't, I've been so focused on the work and how can I use this to advance the work that I should probably figure that out too. Well, I think all of you are very serious as I was having a conversation with Dr. Taylor Perone, who is one of the local genius fellows. He said, oh, no, I probably I don't know what I will do. So I said to him on behalf of his wife, I thought he studies landscapes. He could study landscape in Bali or the Caribbean. I'm going to say something similar to you. I think you can have a deep thought somewhere like that (laughs) and have some fun, (laughs) at least and acknowledge it. 
and another dinner, maybe. <laughs> no, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the excitement of the people in the center, because this really is a big deal, and you are just getting it off the the ground. So it's not just uh, something for you, as you've said, but this is going to have meaning in terms of just bringing attention to the work at the center, if nothing else, even if you didn't get money, but you do. This is really quite something to raise interest and awareness about your work. It's another level of doing that. Well, I mean, and that to me is the one of the reasons why I just really appreciated this fellowship, just because I'm part of a team. And so even though my name is, is sort of out there, you know, I'm I'm doing everything I'm doing as, as part of a, a team of people. And, and certainly, um, you know, I, I work very closely with with some very, very talented, you know, people at the center. And what was crazy is the day after sort of the day was announced, my colleagues at the center, they sort of threw me a, a surprise, a lunch bash. And I was just you know, touched, like everyone was there and everyone was just really, really excited, you know, and, and I think we as a center was was excited because obviously we, we do work, you know, in, in terms of, you know, studying and trying to advocate against racism that can be very difficult. And so these wins, you know, are things that we really have to sort of lean in and appreciate it. And I need to do more of that. So I'm learning to. <laughs> oh, good. Well, that brings me to my last question, which is this. You have a very real-world perspective about the work that you do. You're not naive. You also seem to have an overall positive vibe, but still, as you've just said, you know, what you're doing is sometimes can be intensely heavy. And I wonder, what do you do personally to keep your spirits up? Well, I take a lot of solace in just people, and I'm driven to get my spirits up by watching, by seeing other people's spirits down. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, when I see people being harmed because of the color of their skin or because of their zip code, it just really keeps me focused, you know, and, and, and driven. At the same time, I do do things like have my sangria. <laughs> uh, okay. And, you know, I exercise pretty regularly. And, you know, I try to take time each day to just, you know, settle myself by reading. And, you know, and so there, I try to have a routine of things to sort of settle myself emotionally and, and, you know, conceptually, but, and, you know, I'm still also sort of learning how to do that. And I think many of us who are engaged in this work are really learning how to do self-care. Well, we'll be keeping up with you and congratulations again. And thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for, for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi is a member of the 2021 MacArthur Genius Fellows and the founder of Boston University's Center for Anti-Racist Research. His work has helped promote conversations about anti-racism and helped focus attention on the efforts to redress America's long-standing racial challenges. He joined us as part of our series, The Genius Next Door. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at gbh.org news under the radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubley and engineered by Dave Goodman. Sarah Kaplan is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.